Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. What a joy to give him the worship that he deserves. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's continue our worship now. As, as Chris says, we turn to the book of Acts and the 20th chapter. Acts chapter 20. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 16. I'm going to read verses 1 through 13, and then we're going to read 13 through 16 in the message here. So if you'd please stand me f- with me for the reading of God's word. Acts chapter 20, verses 1 through 13. This is God's word. Now, after the uproar had ceased, Paul, having summoned and exhorted the disciples, said farewell, left to go to Macedonia. When he had gone through those districts and had given them much exhortation, he came to Greece. There he spent about three months, when a plot was formed against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria. He decided to return through Macedonia. He was accompanied by Sopater of Berea, the son of Pyrrhus, and by Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonians, and Gaius of Derbe, and Timothy, and Tychicus, and Trophimus of Asia. But these had gone on ahead and were waiting for us at Troat. We sailed from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread and came to them at Troas within five days, and there we stayed seven days. On the first day of the week, when we gathered together to break bread, Paul began speaking to them, intending to leave the next day, and he prolonged his message until midnight. Now, there were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered together, and there was a young man named Eutychus sitting on the windowsill, sinking into a deep sleep. And as Paul kept on talking, he sunk into that sleep and fell down from the third floor and was picked up dead. When Paul went down and fell upon him, and after embracing him, he said, Do not be troubled, for his life is in him. When he had gone back up, broken the bread, and eaten, he talked with them a long while until daybreak, and then left. And they took away the boy alive, were not a little comforted. Heavenly Father, it is a joy to give praise to your holy name. You alone are worthy of our praise. It's a delight to give it to you. It's a delight to read your word and be instructed by your word and be changed by your word and be conformed by your word into the image of your son. And that's what we pray this morning. I pray that for everyone here, that you, they, you would conform them into the image of your son or if they're not regenerated, that you would save their everlasting souls. And be glorified in this time, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Well, the book of Acts is a historical testimony of many incredible occurrences and events that actually took place almost 2,000 years ago. In it, we see the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ, the coming of the promised Holy Spirit, and the birth of the church. We see many signs and wonders, many miracles performed performed at the hands of the apostles. We see the geographical advancement of the gospel of God as it goes from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. We see faithful men and women bearing witness to the grace of God as they tell of his abundant mercy, which is extended to the worst of mankind, to rebels, to enemies, to willful transgressors of his holy law, 
only to then see these same faithful witnesses then imprisoned and beaten and afflicted and even martyred in the process. Affliction from the world, which as we saw last week, only seems to increase the desire and intensify the desire and determination of those left behind to continue proclaiming the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, the book of Acts is an exciting testimony indeed, but within the testimony of the birth of the larger church, an individual testimony seems to take center stage. An individual conversion and transformation seems to be given the most attention. And that, of course, is the testimony of one Saul of Tarsus, or the man we would know as the Apostle Paul. Paul, who is the central figure in the latter half of the book of Acts, next to Christ, of course. Paul, who God used in mighty ways to not only bear witness to his gospel throughout that place and time, but whose testimony would have a lasting impact on generations and generations of believers, even up to and including today. His testimony has provided hope for multitudes, millions, uh, maybe billions of sinful men and women throughout time who said, if this guy can be saved, if this guy can be so mightily used by God, especially when calling himself the chief of sinners, well, then folks like us have some hope, don't we? That's what I'd like to spend uh, our time considering this morning, uh, the transformation that took place in this man's life, how We come from Saul was ravaging the church and I persecuted the church of God to apostle and missionary and preacher and pastor of the church, all which I believe we see an example of here in the 20th chapter of the book of Acts. Even from the first few verses here, we begin to see Luke draw this out, though there is so much that He doesn't say in these verses that Paul would go on to describe in his writings, which we'll get to in a moment, but even from the very first verse, we can see the evidence of this powerful transformation in his life. Look at verse 1. Luke writes, Now after the uproar had ceased, Paul, having summoned and exhorted the disciples, said farewell and left to go to Macedonia. Last week, remember, the riot in the theater in Ephesus, a silversmith, he riled up a mob of angry people who took a couple of traveling companions of Paul to do who knows what with them, all because Paul had been preaching that gods made with hands were no gods at all, which of course is the truth, but as we've seen time after time in this testimony and even in our own experiences in life, the truth is not something wicked men and women of this world are interested in dealing in. Remember, Paul wanted to go into that theater. Remember that? He wanted to go into the crowd, but he was persuaded to hang back until things settled down a little bit, and settled down they did. Luke says here, after the uproar had ceased, Paul called all the disciples, the learners, the Christ followers who had come to faith in that city. He called these men and women to himself and did what before he left? Well, he exhorted them. That's what Luke says. He comforted them. He encouraged them. He urged them, no doubt, in this setting to remain strong in the faith. Remember, he wrote in one of his letters to the Corinthians, there are many adversaries, many opponents to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and those who would bear witness to it. There are many adversaries. 
so lovingly. He calls these disciples to himself, which again is every believer up to and including today. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're a disciple of Christ. He calls these Ephesian believers, he encouraged them, and he, he says, listen, it's been real, but I'm leaving, going off to Macedonia. Now, this is where Luke kind of glosses over things, okay? Again, in addition to being a doctor, he's also a historian. He's only got so much room in this book. And so he just kind of summarizes the itinerary, itinerary of the start of Paul's third missionary journey. But in order for us to get the true heart of the apostle here and really to have a greater appreciation for this transformation, I want to dig into what was actually going on during this time. Okay, Luke writes in verses 2 and 3, When he had gone through those districts of Macedonia and had given them much, much exhortation, he came to Greece. There he spent three months when a plot was formed against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria he decided to return through Macedonia. So we touched on this a little bit last week. But we have to remember Corinth in these verses, okay? Corinth is key in the Apostle Paul's life, okay? And it's in these three verses, his writings uh, give us a window into exactly how much this man suffered. How much he suffered for Christ's namesake, okay? You remember, he's in Corinth in chapter 18. He had just gone through Berea. He had just gone through Athens. He comes to Corinth. He meets Priscilla and Aquila there and immediately begins devoting himself to the word and preaching to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. Well, this too caused an uproar. Ephesians wasn't Paul's first riot rodeo, Okay? But God says to him in a vision, he comes to him in a vision in the night, and he says this, you keep preaching. Okay, nobody's going to hurt you. I have many people in this city. Remember when he said that? So he stayed there. He stayed for a year and a half. He's preaching in these synagogues until the Jews had finally had enough. And then a new proconsul comes, and a new proconsul has been named, and they bring Paul, these Jews, to the judgment seat, and they want him condemned. But the guy, this new proconsul, says, we're not going to condemn him, Okay. So the Jews, instead, they grab a leader of the synagogue, of one of the synagogues, Sosthenes, if you remember. They take him out into the streets and they beat him. Paul gets out of there. He goes uh, to Ephesus for a quick, quick trip before going back to Antioch. And as Luke again summarizes uh, by saying he passes through the upper regions. So before coming back to Ephesus, Paul does this whole loop multiple times over. That's where he is up there. I'll send that map to you later, who's ever in the directory. I know you can't read it right now, but I'm just trying to show you. Look at all the purple and the, the red up there. And what he's doing, he's visiting the churches he helped establish. He's strengthening the churches. He's, he's building up and exhorting the churches. Then he's writing letters, letters to other churches during his visits all throughout the empire here. In other words, he wasn't just some flyby evangelist. Okay? He, he wasn't only concerned with how many souls he could get saved, how many conversion notches he could get on his trophy belt. He, he wasn't concerned with the number of souls the Lord saved as he was for the condition of the souls that the Lord saved. Okay? He went back through all these regions, all these districts, all these regions. He's building them up. He's, he's following, them up, uh, following up with them. He's training them up. He's training up the men of the churches so that when he leaves, they can continue to 
build the body up, strengthen the body, pour into the body, uh, preparing them, among other things, to deal with the many adversaries they will have to face on account of their faith, okay? Again, he's not concerned so much with the, the quantity of conversions, but the quality, the quality of conversions. Why that? Why is that? Because he knows that true disciples will make true disciples. It wasn't his job to save everybody in the world. It will go forth through the proclamation of these true disciples. So he goes back through all these provinces, all the while he's just getting decimated physically and emotionally. He would later tell Timothy he was poured out like a drink offering, and his sacrifice is perhaps no better understood than in one of his letters to that church in Corinth, okay? Last week I said, what we know as 2 Corinthians, okay? What we know as 2 Corinthians, but there were very likely at least four letters from Paul to Corinth, including one where he said, you know, I know there are guys in that church there, maybe one in particular who questions my authority. There were slanders in the church at Corinth. They were slandering Paul. Slanders are those whom Alex Strauch says, that spread lies, false rumors, malicious gossip and innuendos, and are capable of inflicting long-term irreparable damage on relationships and reputations of others. That's a slander. He said they're often controlled by anger, often controlled by jealousy, bitterness, or wounded feelings. And they may even believe the lies they're spreading. In many cases, the targets of such slander will be elders and deacons, the leaders. This is nothing new. Nothing new. This is why Paul sarcastically called the slanderers at Corinth super apostles. They were trying to put themselves over him. They were trying to usurp his authority. They were false teachers. But he said, facetiously, by the way, I may in no way compare to them, but are they Hebrews? Well, so am I. Are they Israelites? Well, so am I. Are they of Abraham's seed? Well, so am I. Are they ministers of Christ? He says, I speak as if I'm insane. I more so. In far more labors, in far more imprisonments, in beatings without number, in frequent danger of death, five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes less one, Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I have spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own countrymen, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the desolate places, dangers on the sea, danger among false brothers. I have been in labor and hardship in many sleepless nights. And starvation and thirst, often hungry and cold, without enough clothing. And apart from such external things, he says, there's the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. What's he talking about here? Well, as one preacher said, Paul was the one with blood on his game jersey. Okay? He says, I've sacrificed everything for these people. What have these guys done? Where have they been? And guess what time period uh, a lot of the troubles on this list occur? Right here in Acts chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. 
okay? Which, again, Luke kind of glosses over, right? All this strenuous travel, carrying all these burdens, all with an aim not to draw attention to himself or become some famous preacher so he could receive the praise and the accolades that men like these, these, these false teachers so lust after and yearn after just the approval of men. This wasn't what Paul motivated Paul. No, what motivated Paul would, was that he would bring glory to his Lord, not, by, not only by being faithful to his call to preach the message of the gospel of grace, but in his following up and into bringing them to mature manhood, to maturity in Christ, in his sincere desire to, as Peter said, have them grow in the grace and knowledge of their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That was his aim when he was going through all this. And this should be the aim of every professing believer. It should be your desire, if you belong to him, to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. This should be all of our aim. We don't want to remain stagnant in our faith. We don't want to remain shallow in our faith, weak in our faith, stunted in our faith. Uh, the ones who he would later, Paul would later tell the Ephesians, are tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceit, deceitful scheming. These are the ones who get gobbled up by the false teachers, by the open theists, by the charismatics, by the easy believists, the prosperity preachers, and the like. We don't want to remain in spiritual infancy. No, we want to grow. We want to mature. We want to be strengthened so that we too can bring glory to our Lord by telling others what it means to truly have new life in Christ, right? Well, that's what Paul was doing here. He went around strengthening these disciples. We see it in uh, chapter 14. We see it in chapter 15. We see it in chapter 18. Even here in chapter 20, he had a true love for the church of Christ. He had a true zeal for the church of God. He even said he had anxiety over the churches. Grief. See, these super apostles, they were slandering Paul like you couldn't imagine here. And what hurt him so much was that the church in Corinth didn't seem to have his back. They didn't didn't defend him. They just kind of bought into what these guys were saying. And so Paul wrote several letters to them, one before 1 Corinthians, which he calls in 1 Corinthians an earlier letter. And then what we would know is 1 Corinthians, which is inspired. Then a severe letter, which followed 1 Corinthians, where he would apparently really let them have it, though we don't have access to it. I wish I did. I'd love to see it. Uh, Then finally, another letter we talked about last week, our 2 Corinthians, okay, where he expresses this comforting news that Titus brought to him. Remember from last week? The guilty parties had either left or repented. Uh, Relationships were restored. So when he went back to Corinth here in our verses 1 through 3, this is Greece, when he went When he went back after an even more anxious travels, just waiting to hear how they would respond, when he went back, it was truly a joyous occasion. It's truly joyous. He spends three months there, Luke says. He's about to set sail for Syria, but our verse 3 says there was a plot formed against him by the Jews. Okay, They still wanted him dead. So you remember, he has his plans. He says, I'm going back to Jerusalem. I want to be there by Pentecost. Then I'm going off to Rome. This is what I'm going to do. But the Lord has other plans. Paul gets wind of some guys who want him dead. 
They want to, maybe they'll throw him overboard, say that he leapt, you know, over, uh, at sea. So what does he do? He says, you know what, I'll just go back up through Macedonia, which is really the opposite direction of Syria. Syria's over here, and then Jerusalem's way down here, as if there's a map right here. It's an individual map, if you see it. But it's on the opposite end of where he's going. Luke says that's what he does, though. He goes up to Macedonia. He brings a delegation with him, okay? He gathered up these guys uh, to take that offering we talked about last week down to the poor churches in Jerusalem. Remember the, the charge that the apostles gave him uh, and Barnabas at the beginning of his ministry to the Gentiles. You remember this? Uh, he says it in Galatians chapter 2. He says, only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. And that's what he did. He took up an offering for the poor Christians in Jerusalem, and he had these guys with him. And we'll see in a minute the different districts that they represented, okay? Now think about this. Gentile churches taking up an offering for the church at Jerusalem. Remember what these Christian Jews thought about Gentiles up till Acts chapter 10. You remember that? Remember what they thought about Gentiles for thousands of years before that? It wasn't very good. But now all of a sudden you've got these Gentiles, heathens, pagans, godless men and women who have been transformed by the glorious gospel of grace, taking up a collection to help the Christian Jews in Jerusalem. This is another testimony to the transformative power of the gospel, this time on a national and ethnic level. It's amazing. Verse 4, Luke says, Paul was accompanied by Sopater of Berea, the son of Pyrrhus, and by Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonians. Now, Interestingly, uh, Aristarchus, we met last week, very faithful Jewish man, but with a Greek name meaning best ruler. That's where we get the word aristocrat. The premier one, primo, number one. That's very interesting, especially when you pair him up with his buddy, Secundus, which means number two, <laughs> uh, or second. They're from Thessalonica. Then you have Gaius of Derby. Again, we saw him last week. And Timothy, we know, of course. He's Paul's son in the faith, whom he would write two inspired letters to, a very faithful companion and disciple, along with Tychicus and Trophimus of Asia. In verse 5, we notice someone else had joined the group. Okay, but look at verse 5. It says, But these had gone on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. Okay? And we set sailed from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. Came to them, we came to them at Troas within five days. There we stayed seven days. That us there tells us who's back in the mix. That's right, Luke. That means we have a firsthand account coming up. They're in Troas, right? They're in Troas. They're with the offering. They're with the delegation. They're heading toward Jerusalem eventually. And what does Luke say when they get there to Troas? He says, they assembled together with other believers, okay? Verse 7, you got to see this in your own Bibles. Don't take my word for it. Verse 7, on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul began speaking to them, intending to leave uh, the next day. He prolonged his message till midnight. Okay, so he's just dropping in here, right? This is a quick week-long trip, but notice what he sticks around for congregational worship with the saints. On what day of the week? Yeah, first day of the week. That's right. What day is that? Sunday. 
The seventh day is what we know as the Sabbath is the day of rest. It's on Saturday. But Christians, you see, historically, and even here from the very first days of the early church, were not gathered on the Sabbath for worship, uh, except a few rare occasions in the beginning, but now they're gathering on what we would know as Sunday. And we see what they do when assembled. They gather to break bread and hear the preaching of the word. This was an there was an intentionality behind their meetings. They were all centered around worshiping the Lord through communion and preaching, just like we're doing this morning, just like we've done this morning. But why Sunday? Why the first day and not the seventh day? I mean, we know that Paul still observes some Jewish holidays, customs, and tradition, but this, this seems like an awfully big one to neglect here. It's even part of the Decalogue, the, the fourth commandment. Shouldn't Christians celebrate the Sabbath? Shouldn't we celebrate and gather together on the Sabbath? Well, thank you, Enos. Okay, I'm going to skip ahead a few pages. That's settled. No, that's right. <laughs> We've been asked this question before. So uh, I want to share with you 10 reasons why we don't observe the Sabbath or day of rest. Now, this list is not my own. This wasn't from me. It's from grace to you. But I couldn't have put it any better. So here are some of the reasons, okay? First... The Sabbath was the sign to Israel of the Old Covenant. Because we are now under the New Covenant, we are no longer required to keep the sign of the Old Covenant. Second, the New Testament nowhere commands Christians to observe the Sabbath. Third, in our only glimpse of an early church worship service in the New Testament, we find the church meeting on a Sunday, the first day of the week. This is in our passage, Acts 27. I would also add that we see it in Paul's charge to the church in Corinth to take up an offering on the first day of the week when they all come together. Fourth, we have no hint in the Old Testament that God expected the Gentile nations to observe the Sabbath, nor are they ever condemned for failing to do so. This is certainly strange if he expected all peoples to observe the Sabbath. Fifth, There is no evidence of anyone's keeping the Sabbath before the time of Moses, nor are there any commands to keep the Sabbath before the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. Sixth, and I think this one's huge, okay? The Jerusalem Council did not impose Sabbath-keeping on the Gentile believers. Acts chapter 15. I'm going to send all these to you if you're in the directory. I can see some fast writers there. Just relax. Don't get too relaxed, though. We're going to read about Eutychus in a minute. Maybe you should keep writing. Acts 15, they said to the Gentile believers, they didn't say anything about the Sabbath. Seventh, Paul warned the Gentiles about many different sins in his epistles, but never about breaking the Sabbath. Eighth, Paul rebuked the Galatians for for thinking God expected them to observe special days, including the Sabbath. Ninth, Paul taught that keeping the Sabbath was a matter of Christian liberty. Tenth, the early church fathers from Ignatius to Augustine taught that the Old Testament Sabbath had been abolished and that the first day of the week, Sunday, was when the Christians would meet for worship, should meet for worship. That disproves the claim that Sunday worship was not instituted until the fourth century. Again, that's from John MacArthur. It's a very good list. I'll send it to you after the service, as well as that map from earlier. But most of all, why we celebrate the Sabbath on the first day, or most of all, why, why Christians gather on the first day of the week is because that's when Christ was raised from the dead. That's why we call it the Lord's, Lord's Day, by the way. Uh, 52 Resurrection Sundays that we get to celebrate every year. 
And the believer in Christ gets to remember the Lord's death, burial, and resurrection 52 times. As we come together, we remember this together. Uh, we do so on the Lord's day. The Lord's day. John says the same thing, by the way, in the Revelation. When Christ appeared to him on Patmos, he said, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. That's the first day of the week. And we're still, here we are still worshiping him together on this day. Now, is it wrong to have a personal Sabbath on the Saturday? Is that wrong? I don't think so at all. It's uh, Christian liberty. The problem is when folks begin to push it on others as evidence of salvation. And the Messianic Jews, uh, they fall victim to this type of legalism all the time. Well, Paul uh, and his crew were in Troas. They gathered together with the local believers there on the first day of the week. They're all together in some kind of building, maybe a really large house or some other meeting hall. And what was he doing? He was preaching. That's right. He was giving a message. This is how you strengthen a congregation. Uh, this is how you edify a body. This is how you encourage a weary and beaten down people. The word of God. That's why I think it's insanity when these so, to see these so-called churches around here putting the preaching of God's word in a distant second or third or fourth to programs or to entertaining people, or an emphasis on youth groups, or even good things like counseling and outreach ministries. No, no, no. This right here is the primary means of our edification and the building up of the body and the equipping of the body. And this is exactly what Paul does. He gives them the message, and it's a long one. It's a long one. Now, I don't know if you're aware of this. But each and every Lord's Day here, when we come together, at least when I'm preaching, there's a great battle that's being taking place in these walls, a great war being waged between me and that clock back there. <laughs> Sometimes while I'm preaching, I'm thinking, I'm having conscious thoughts like, that clock, we need to fix that clock. It seems like it's on double time. And the way that thing goes, it's so fast. Uh, we need to check that clock out back there. The clock's always mocking me along the way as it just keeps going around. Well, Paul, he didn't have a clock in the back, okay? He's not concerned about the time, which sounds great in some ways, not so great in others. But listen to what James Boyce says. Okay, this is a long quote, but it's worthy of your attention. He says, We cannot fail to notice how much time was given to teaching on this particular Lord's Day. In this case, teaching by the Apostle Paul. He delivered what we would call a sermon or exposition of the Word of God. From the very beginning, this had been the prime element in Christian services. Not everybody can or should preach as, Paul, as long as Paul did, and I agree with that. Uh, we do not know when this began. I guess it would be after the end of a normal work day, after everyone had gotten together in this upper room of the house, perhaps 7 o'clock at night, maybe later. But he was still going strong at midnight. This message could have lasted four or five hours, he says. Should preachers preach that long today? Probably not. People are not trained to listen for that long. We would quickly lose them if we tried. But the fact that Paul had so much to say reminds us of the importance of the gospel message of Christianity. Boyce went on. Whenever Christians have lost that emphasis... Whenever they have begun to think of worship chiefly as entertainment or 
That what is accomplished, that what is accomplished in worship is essentially an emotional response that can be worked up by the singing of certain hymns or choruses, or that worship should consist of a series of testimonies of how people were lost in sin with a great emphasis on the sin and were then brought to Christ when they have substituted these other elements for careful Bible exposition and sermons, the church has always been weakened and sometimes has even died. When they have substituted these other elements for careful Bible exposition and sermons, the church has always been weakened sometimes has even died. My brothers and sisters, we're a simple church. We're a simple church who longs to worship God in simple ways by simply focusing on the main thing, which we long to remain very, very faithful to. We want our musical worship to be simple, to direct our hearts to worship the magnificently complex God, and we don't need a production in hopes of getting folks into an emotional tizzy. And we want our prayers to be simple, okay? Knowing that we're not heard because of our many words, nor do we pray for the approval or adulation of other men, but rather in a sincere desire to offer offer, uh, petition and supplication and thanksgiving to the Lord in Christ's name through our now regenerated hearts. Likewise, we want our fellowship to be simple and and God-honoring, God-glorifying, not manufactured and forced, knowing that we are only able to have true fellowship because of the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ who calls members of his body to himself, not by the strategies or scheming of men. We want the breaking of the bread to be simple, not grandiose or extravagant, and certainly not tarnished by the trends of the culture and the practices of the false teachers and false religions, knowing that our observance of this ordinance through the symbolic elements represent the body given and the blood shed. And they were given to us by the very Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ himself, who came to this earth as a perfect sacrifice for sinners who are saved by his grace alone. And we want our preaching... To be simple, knowing the complexities of the word, the depths of the word, the inexhaustible nature of the word, but now knowing that we have our hearts illuminated by the truth, uh, to the truth of his word by his Holy Spirit who now dwells in us by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the scriptures alone, and for the glory of God alone. And as long as these elders are here, will continue to be uncompromising and unceasing in our commitment to faithfully delivering and upholding the full counsel of the inspired, infallible, and inerrant word of God. Because because we believe this is how we can best equip you for ministry. This is how we can best equip you to be protected from false teachers. This is how we can best prepare you and grow you to be on guard against the ravenous wolves which seek to separate you from the flock and devour you. We have to give you the word of God. It's like, and the way we do that primarily is through preaching when we all come together, but we do it in other means. We do it in home groups. We do it in counseling. We do it in precepts, Sunday school. Everything is centered around the word of God, but primarily through the preaching of God's word. It's like J. Vernon McGee said, sermonettes produce Christianettes. 
You don't want to be a Christian, that, do you? No, of course not. The proclamation of the word of God is how the body grows. In quantity, maybe, sure, if the Lord wills. The more people that come in through those doors to hear the word of God faithfully proclaimed, the better. Uh, but how many folks we can get into the seats isn't our first priority, or even our hundredth priority. We're concerned with quality. This is how we can best minister to your everlasting soul. Okay? Not just your temporary life, although that's edified as well. This is how we can best display a Christ-like love for your soul, by giving you a steady diet of his words, not our words. Okay? Paul felt that same way about his brothers and sisters in Troas. <clears throat> and we went a bit long, okay? Apparently it was too long for some folks to bear. Luke says this in verse 8. He says, There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered together. There was a young man named Eutychus. He was sitting on the windowsill. He was seeking into a deep sleep. And as Paul kept on talking, he sunk into that sleep, fell down from the third floor, he was picked up dead, okay? Now, interestingly, that name Eutychus, it means lucky. <laughs> are fortunate. Well, this lucky young man, maybe from a combination of the nighttime, the oil from the lamps, the smoke, the stuffiness of the room, he felt himself drifting away as Paul spoke. Now, this has to be an encouragement to any preacher of the Word of God. See a guy fall asleep during the Apostle Paul's message. It makes the rest of us feel better, you know. But he starts nodding off. Maybe he overcorrects a little bit from the nod and loses his balance. He finds himself falling down from the third story. Now, I'm not going to call this guy the first Sunday school dropout or anything. <laughs> I'm not going to do it. He's a child for Pete's sakes. The word for young man here is Naeneus, okay, meaning child or lad. He was probably 8 to 14 years old. But he falls out of this window. It's more like a small opening in the wall. And wouldn't you know it, the impact kills him. Now, some people, they like to get all scholarly and uptight, and they say, well, he didn't die. I mean, Paul goes down there and says, don't be troubled, his life is in him. But I think I'm going to stick with the good doctor on this one, Dr. Luke, and assume that the kid is dead. What follows is nothing short of a miracle. Okay, this reminds me of Elijah and the widow in 1 Kings 17. When her little lad passed away, you remember? <clears throat> Elijah stretched himself upon the child three times, called to Yahweh and said, Oh, Yahweh God, I pray to you, let this child's life return to him. Yahweh heard the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child returned to him, and he became alive. Then Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper room into the house and gave him to his mother. And Elijah said, see, your son is alive. Imagine that moment. Imagine the joy, the, the exceeding joy of that mother. Why? Well, her son was alive. And she realized that Elijah had not come to condemn her, as she had originally thought, but rather to confirm that he was a prophet sent by Yahweh himself. She said, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of Yahweh in your mouth is truth. Likewise, in our verse 10, but Paul went down, fell upon him. After embracing him, he said, do not be troubled. His life is in him. Just like that, the kid's life is restored. I believe this is a resurrection. 
a miracle, which Paul had the apostolic authority to perform, like Peter with that little girl in uh, Acts chapter 9, right? Tabitha? Uh, Why did that miracle take place? Perhaps it's the same reason here. So that folks would know that he was a man of God and that what he just got done talking about for, for the past five hours was the truth come from Yahweh. The child was dead, but he's now alive. Now, don't go getting any ideas here. It's like Spurgeon said to his congregation. Remember, if we go to sleep during the sermon and die, there are no apostles here to restore us. (laughs) And that's exactly right. There are no more apostles today. No one has this gifting today. We have the testimony of his word, which is sufficient. It's sufficient. We can be thankful that we don't have a second floor here or a third floor here, right? That's a gift from the Lord. But even then, I want you to notice what this gifted apostle does the very next moment. Okay, look at verse 11. When he had gone back up, had broken the bread and eaten, he healed some more people. No? He turned the water into wine? No? Started speaking in tongues and rolling around on the ground like some wounded animal? No. He talked with them a long time until daybreak. Then he left. They took away the boy alive and were not a little comforted. He went right back up. He breaks the bread and he keeps on speaking to them. Okay? Now, no doubt people were talking about it. No doubt this was a topic of discussion for weeks and weeks to come. But this tells me Paul wasn't there for the miracle. Okay? Or the signs or the wonders. In other words, that's not what he led with. He didn't try to go into Troas to get his numbers up by wooing the crowds with magnificent displays or pandering to the cultural Christians of his day. He just went up there to preach the word of God. The kid falls out of the window. He dies. Paul raises him from the dead. Then he goes right back in to strengthening the disciples through the power of the word of God and the gospel of Christ. Do you see this here? You have to see this. There's not many more miracles that take place in the rest of the book of Acts. We don't see many more miracles, right? Okay. So we've seen Paul the missionary. We've seen Paul the preacher. We've seen Paul the apostle. And Paul the pastor, the shepherd of God's flock. The shepherd who, with his delegation, plurality of church leaders, multiple men from Every district will head off Monday morning for one more meeting with the now elders of Ephesus to encourage them to go and do likewise. Learn from my example of servant leadership. Tend to the flock. Love the flock. Care for the flock. Feed the flock. Protect the flock. A theme which we have the privilege of having Alex Strauch here with us for the next two weeks to elaborate on as we look into the second half of Acts chapter 20. For now, Luke says in verse 13, but we, going ahead to the ship, set sail for Assos, intending from there to take Paul on board, for so he had arranged it, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Assos, we took him on board to Medellin. Sailing from there, we arrived the following day opposite Chios. And the next day, we followed over to Samos, The day following, we came to Miletus, for Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hurrying to be in Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. And there he goes again. 
Now let me ask you, how does this happen? How does this happen? How does a guy go from ravaging the church to literally pouring himself out as a drink offering for her? How can a guy who had such disdain for Jesus of Nazareth go on to become one of his greatest witnesses? How does a guy go from being a hater of God and a fierce opponent of his perfect plan of redemption uh, to being a willing slave of God, completely sold out to being a part of it and encouraging others to do the same? How could such a transformation possibly take place? Well, I think we should let him answer that question, okay? And what more fitting letter to draw from than one that he wrote to the church in Corinth? I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians. You have to see it in your Bible. 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the seat in front of you. 1 Corinthians 15. We will wait. All right. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. This is Paul. Now I make known to you, brothers, the gospel which I proclaimed as good news to you, which also you received and also which you stand by, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I proclaimed to you as good news, unless you believed for nothing. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely board, he appeared to me also, for I am the least of the apostles. After all, we just got done reading. I am the least of the apostles and not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, so you believe. My brothers and sisters, may we never forget that the only reason we can call him Lord and God and worship him in this place today and life everlasting by his grace alone, is by the grace that he extends to sinners like us. By the grace of God, Paul was who he was. And if you're in Christ this morning, then you are who you are because of the grace of God as well. You see, none of us are worthy of salvation. None of us are worthy to serve the King of kings and the Lord of lords, let alone be called his sons and daughters, destined for eternity in heaven with him. None of us are worthy. But that's what makes his amazing grace so amazing. Amen? Amen. That's right. 
Not only that, but he delights in his people. He delights in you if you're one of his. He, he delights to save us. He delights to forgive us. I, I, I want this for you. I, I want to praise his holy name alongside of you for all of eternity, 10,000 times 10,000 years. If you aren't sure, sure, if you aren't absolutely certain that this is true of you, if you're not certain that you are one of his this morning, I would invite you to believe in the same gospel that Paul preached 2,000 years ago. I want, you, I want to invite you to believe the same gospel that Paul believed 2,000 years ago. I want to invite you to be indwelled with the Holy Spirit of God, the very same Spirit who indwelled Paul 2,000 years ago. I would invite you this morning to place your faith in and place your trust in the risen Lord Jesus for salvation and reconciliation to the Father. I would invite you to turn from your sin Turn to the Lord alone for salvation, for his, for his forgiveness. He is both willing and able to forgive you this morning if you would cry out to his name. Just ask him. Behold, now is the appointed time. Behold, today is the day of salvation. Don't leave this place. Don't get up out of that seat this morning without being absolutely sure that you belong to him. Believe in his gospel of grace, my brothers and sisters. Believe. And let's spend the rest of eternity praising his holy name together. He bids you come to him today. He bids you come to him. Be transformed in this life. He bids you come to him for everlasting life through the power of his marvelous gospel of grace. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right, let's close in prayer and we'll have uh, Casey and the music team come up and lead us in one last song. Heavenly Father, it is truly a joy to open up your divinely inspired and errant and fallible word and be transformed by it, be changed by it. We know this was the means of your saving us in the first place, the word and your spirit. And so to be able to come together as brothers and sisters, as your children, as a family now, as a body, and open them up to be further instructed for life in this world, it's just a privilege that... We, we can't do anything else but give you praise. And so that's what we do. We lift this praise up to you, and, and we just give you uh, all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope that you have been ministered to through this week's exposition of God's Word. If you would like more information about our church and services, please visit our website or email us at info, that's I-N-F-O, at lakewoodbiblechapel.org. Again, that's info. I-N-F-O at lakewoodbiblechapel.org. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Lakewood Bible Chapel.